The Old Testament lesson this morning is Daniel 1, verses 17 through 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Beloved, today's New Testament lesson comes to us from 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. I think it's fair to say that one reason why preachers often turn the great events of redemptive history into object lessons or timeless truths, and oftentimes even these are obscured by illustrations and stories and multimedia presentations, is because either they nor their congregations know the Bible well enough or care to know the Bible well enough 
to let the biblical story tell itself. And then trust God to apply his word to the hearts of those hearing it proclaim. Now, because it is a difficult book, requiring a great deal of background, the book of Daniel is often subject to such unfortunate moralizing treatment. And that's really a shame because the story of four Jewish boys taken captive, forced to conform to foreign ways, then finding themselves standing before the king of Babylon, the very man who's done this evil to them, and then outperforming by ten times the king's own best and brightest. Well, that's far more interesting than any illustration I might find, any story I might tell, or any timeless truth we might attempt to identify. And their story is especially compelling when we know the biblical background, which puts this account into perspective, which is the reason why I'll spend some time this morning developing that background. Now, yes, this is a wonderful story of faith under pressure and resistance in the face of temptation, but it's also a story of God working all things after the counsel of his will while still caring greatly for these four young men. It's God who has chosen Daniel to reveal future chapters in this great story of redemption. Now we're continuing our series on the book of Daniel, and this morning we're going to be wrapping up our time in Daniel chapter 1. Now, as I mentioned several weeks ago when we started our background, the book of Daniel can be quite challenging to understand. That's because of its apocalyptic visions and its very direct ties to ancient Near Eastern history. It's also a difficult book from which to preach for the very same reasons just mentioned. And so we're slowly easing into our study of Daniel's remarkable prophecy. Now, in the first sermon, we spent some time on the background to the book. We looked at its literary structure, which is important to realize so we can interpret it properly. We then established that two themes run simultaneously throughout the course of this book. Themes that are bound together in the person of Daniel who is a prophet of Yahweh and the author of the book that bears his name. The first theme is the sovereignty of God over all the empires and rulers of the world, including the Babylonian Empire and its current king, Nebuchadnezzar. We've considered Daniel's stress upon the sovereignty of God in the opening chapter of the prophecy. It was God who gave Israel's king Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar, along with many of the gold and silver vessels from the temple in Jerusalem that were used in the worship of Yahweh, way back in verse 2 of the first chapter. The very idea of Israel's king being led in chains to Babylon, as well as Jewish gold and silver which had been used in the Jerusalem temple for the worship of Yahweh, now placed in the Babylonian treasury and dedicated to the gods worshipped by Nebuchadnezzar, was something unthinkable to any Jew. And the symbolism attached to these events isn't to be missed by those of us going through the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar thinks his kingdom is far greater than Judah, and he thinks his gods are vastly superior to Yahweh. Well, he's about to discover otherwise. And yet at the same time, Daniel tells us that this tragic set of events occurs because God willed that they occur. The covenant curses meted out by Yahweh upon disobedient Israel. Now, the second theme running throughout the book of Daniel is God's providential care of Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who together have been taken captive to, by Babylonian soldiers and then made to serve the Babylonian royal court. Now, it's hard, 
to imagine how frightening it would have been for these boys between 12 and 14 to have been kidnapped from their homes and their families in Judah, taken to a very strange place where they were then forced to forget their past and their families and their parents and to learn to worship foreign gods. But we see God's sovereignty of care of Daniel throughout this entire saga as Daniel reveals that God gave him favor in the sight of Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, as we saw last time. Ashpenaz was the man responsible for training, or as we might say in modern terms, re-educating, Daniel and his three friends, whose story unfolds throughout the first half of the book of Daniel. Now, taking capable Jewish youths captive, especially ones from royal and noble households, was part of Nebuchadnezzar's larger plan to weaken Judah, a potential enemy. By taking the best and the brightest of Jewish youth, especially future kings and nobles, and then turning them into servants in the Babylonian court. As these young men were made to serve their Babylonian masters, they are a living testimony to Nebuchadnezzar's power. Jewish royals, Jewish nobles serving Babylonian royals and Babylonian nobles, a humiliating demonstration of Babylon's complete domination over Judah. Now, the tremendous pressure upon Daniel and his friends to comply with this Babylonian indoctrination is a matter of life or death. Now, as we'll see in the next chapter, the Babylonian king was a cruel and vicious tyrant. And yet, in the providence of God, Daniel and his three friends astonished him by how well they had learned the Babylonian language, the culture, and the history. And as we're counting our passage this morning, and we're going to concentrate on verses 18 to 20 primarily, based upon their appearance and knowledge, just from everything you would think, these Jewish boys are now Babylonian servants, ready to dedicate the rest of their lives to serving their new masters. But appearances can be deceiving. Because Yahweh's favor toward these boys is revealed in verse 17, as once again we see God's sovereign hand at work. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, what makes the scene before us this morning, their their appearance before Nebuchadnezzar, so remarkable is that throughout the first chapter we've already seen that Daniel and Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah have successfully resisted their Babylonian captors at virtually every step in their reorientation, despite the tremendous pressure put on them to conform to Babylonian ways and embrace Babylonian religion. Daniel, as we saw, identified Babylon as Shinar, which was the location of the wicked and rebellious city of Babel, which we read about in Genesis chapter 11, destroyed by Yahweh. We read of how these four Hebrew youths deliberately misspelled their new Babylonian names to keep them from honoring pagan gods. And we saw how Daniel and the others managed to avoid defiling themselves by not eating food offered them from the king's table, receiving instead vegetables and water. Now it may indeed have been the case that as a Jew committed to the dietary laws of his people, Daniel wished to avoid the unclean foods of Babylon. But it is very likely that Daniel also wished to avoid any symbolic actions that identified Nebuchadnezzar as his own covenant lord. That would be table fellowship with the king, which is the means in ancient Near Eastern culture of effecting a lasting bond between two parties. A a meal together meant you had bonded. 
Daniel could serve the king as a servant in the civil kingdom. Yet Daniel refused to give the king and his gods the devotion and worship symbolized by eating from the king's table. And so when we read in verses 18 to 20 of the king's acknowledgement of their superior wisdom and understanding, we know that the only way this was possible is through the direct action of God, giving them skill, wisdom, and learning much greater than all the other captive youths serving at the same time in the Babylonian court. They resist, and they prosper. Now, in order to understand why the closing verses of chapter 1 are so remarkable and surprising, lies the big story that lies behind this we haven't told yet, as well as to help us gain an uh, an understanding of biblical background as to why specific things are going to unfold in the dreams and visions that follow, we need to do a bit more background. So, in the balance of our time this morning, we're going to first consider Yahweh's covenant promises and threatened curses upon Israel. Then we're going to turn to some of the prophetic declarations regarding both Israel's exile and eventual release from captivity in Babylon so they can return home and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple as we saw in our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. And then finally, we'll consider the closing verses of Daniel 1 and how these four men, especially Daniel, will witness God's judgment fall on Babylon. Now first, we have to turn back the clock from about 600 B.C., to about 1400 BC and that moment when the people of Israel were about to enter the promised land of Canaan and this after they'd wandered in the wilderness of the Sinai for 40 years. While they're still on the plains of Moab to the east of Canaan shortly before his own death Moses leads what amounts to a covenant renewal ceremony which is recounted for us in the book of Deuteronomy. On this very solemn occasion, as God's people are about to enter this long-desired land of promise, Canaan, Moses reminded the people of the blessings promised them by Yahweh if, in the generations to come, they remain obedient to their covenant with Yahweh. And then in Deuteronomy 28, verses 46 through 48, Moses also reminds Israel of those covenant curses which will come on them should the nation fall into sin by embracing the false gods of Israel's Canaanite neighbors. And so Moses tells the people, Deuteronomy 28:46-48, And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you'll say, if only it were evening, and the evening you shall say, if only it were the morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes Shall see. Now we know what follows afterwards, especially in the book of Joshua, and then later on in the book of Judges. Israel enters into the promised land with great zeal and great fervor for Yahweh, but as the next generation comes and goes, we see that the seeds of apostasy have already been sown. Because in Judges 2, verses 11 through 15, we find these very tragic words. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, 
who'd brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. So throughout the book of Judges, we read that the people of Israel sway back and forth between short periods of revival after some sort of national peril then longer and deeper periods of idolatry and unbelief. We know that the Israelites want a king because they want to be like the other nations. And so when they finally get a king, first Saul and then David and then Solomon, when they establish the capital city, Jerusalem, they secure a large kingdom that goes from the Red Sea all the way up to the Euphrates. And then they build Yahweh a house, a temple in Jerusalem, which becomes the religious and cultural center of the country. Once they do all of that, the same cycles repeat themselves. Increasing idolatry, then God warning the people through the prophets. That's why the prophets come one after the other. Then calamity occurs, followed by a short time of repentance, followed by ever greater unbelief and idolatry. And you know the history well enough to know that Israel eventually splits into two parts, a a northern kingdom, Israel, which is defeated in exile by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and a southern kingdom uh, below the Mason, no, uh, Judah, the area surrounding Jerusalem. Now, as Israel's decline into idolatry continues, about 705 B.C., the prophet Isaiah brought word of warning to Hezekiah. Well, who's that? Well, he's the king of Judah. And Hezekiah was flirting with making an alliance with Babylon, of all people, because the Assyrians were on the rampage. And Hezekiah, remarkably, the story is told in 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah even allowed Babylonian officials to tour the temple to see the great amounts of gold and silver that Israel and Judah possessed. Hmm. And in Isaiah 39, verses 6 to 7, we read this amazing prophecy from Yahweh to Judah, given a hundred years before the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar in about 587. So here's the prophecy. It's in Isaiah 39. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's just utterly amazing. And Isaiah's prophecy is especially important in light of our previous studies of Ezra and Nehemiah, and now as background for the setting of the book of Daniel. Repeatedly, God had warned Israel of what would happen if the people embrace idolatry, but they keep driving the bus over the cliff. And so when we read in Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel and his three companions are prisoners in Babylon and made to be servants of Nebuchadnezzar, we've heard this already in Isaiah's prophecy. 
And we know that God's covenant curses have come down as he promised on the nation of Israel. God's chosen people reject him, reject his law. They turn instead to serve the idols of their Canaanite neighbors. And their king, Hezekiah, even sought to make an alliance with Israel's pagan neighbors because he didn't trust Yahweh's promise to protect his people. And it's as a consequence of that covenant curse that the young Daniel finds himself taken into captivity, taken to Babylon, and now standing before Nebuchadnezzar. And yet at the same time, that Israel's prophets were warning of judgment to come. They were also foretelling an end of this time of exile and shame. And they were foretelling that God would restore his people, his city and his temple, and their fortunes as a nation. This is a very prominent theme in Isaiah chapter 10. And it's especially prominent in the prophecy of Isaiah, or of Ezekiel rather, who is a contemporary of Daniel. And we find this in Ezekiel 14 and 16 in chapter 39. But it's going to fall to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, which is we're going to see is the climax of the four visions that make up the second half of Daniel. It falls to Daniel to reveal that Jerusalem will be restored because of Yahweh's faithfulness to his word of promise, and this despite the rank unbelief of Yahweh's people. And although the young man Daniel suffered through this terrifying ordeal of being kidnapped and forced to serve in a pagan court of a tyrannical king, those who know Israel's history know that Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah are part of the nation's believing remnant. They're that believing remnant that remains within Judah. Those Jews who, despite the curse of Yahweh upon their own nation, remain faithful to Yahweh and who are preserved and sustained by being raised up by Yahweh to fulfill his purposes in the midst of exile. We know that not only is Daniel going to prophesy, but two other post-exilic prophets whom we've already mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah, Malachi and Zechariah, they're going to be raised up by Yahweh to reveal his purposes for his people upon their return to Judah and Jerusalem. That will eventually bring us to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so when we read of these four youths standing before Nebuchadnezzar, there's far more to the story than merely four Jewish youths subversively resisting tremendous pressure to reject Yahweh and embrace Babylonian gods. Although we certainly don't want to downplay the story of their faithful resistance. But if the prior history of Israel has pointed ahead to Judah's defeat at the hands of the Babylonians and exile from the promised land, the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, have also told us that God is going to eventually restore his people and their nation and their temple. And out of that tragedy of these Jewish youths being made to serve pagan kings foretold by Isaiah, it is Yahweh who calls Daniel to be a prophet. It is Yahweh who has chosen him to be the one to interpret dreams and foretell the future course of men and empires including, as we're going to see, the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. Daniel will also foretell of Israel's restoration and a coming messianic age. And then he'll telescope ahead to the very end of human history. And so at the end of chapter 1, when we read that Yahweh gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, along with the fact that Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, we can now see that while these young men standing firm in their faith is part of the story, it's certainly not the whole of the story. In fact, in verses 18 to 20, we're told that what transpired 
after these young men completed their years of training to prepare them to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court, points in this direction. At the end of time, Daniel says, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs, the man training them, Ashpenaz, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Well, there's some amazing things found in the passage, and we can cover a couple of them this morning. The first is, Daniel's recounting his official entrance into the Babylonian court is filled with echoes from the Joseph story, back from Genesis chapter 37 through 50. In addition to describing Babylonian court magicians using an Egyptian term, Daniel, like Joseph before him, has the God-given ability to interpret dreams that soon is going to be of great importance to Nebuchadnezzar, just as Joseph's ability was to the Pharaoh. And we see this element of Daniel's future role in Babylonian government. We watch it unfold in the next chapter when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Daniel interprets it. As Yahweh enabled Joseph and then later Moses to expose the pagan magicians of the king's court in Egypt as either frauds, like carny tricks, or else demonic, so too Daniel and his three friends will repeatedly triumph over pagan fortune tellers and pagan magicians. Second, after their training is completed, the young men are ushered into the presence of the king. Now, mind you how terrified they must be to be brought into the presence of the very man responsible for all their suffering. And the king then examines them. You think it's bad to go before the consistory. You ought to have to go before Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever the king asked of them, and we're not told the specifics, whatever the king asked, the way these young men conducted themselves very much impressed Nebuchadnezzar. It was expected, I think, it's implied here, that these Jewish royals and nobles would be vastly inferior to the Babylonian counterparts. And instead, these Hebrew youths were found to be ten times better, which is obvious hyperbole, than all the others the king examined. In the court magicians and astrologers to whom the king looked for guidance, it was clear that they're inferior to Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And in that report, we see yet another subtle reminder of Daniel's resistance to his captors, because here the captives excel their captors. Nebuchadnezzar might have taken four boys captive by sheer force, but it's very clear to the reader that Yahweh is sovereign even over the examination given Daniel and his friends, and the supernatural wisdom that's been given to Daniel and his three companions protects them from the king's wrath. And it even serves as a foreshadowing of the life and ministry of Jesus, who scripture says is the wisdom of God incarnate. And finally, we must not let verse 21 slip by without recognizing the implications of a very simple notice that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, Daniel was somewhere between 12 and 14 when he's taken from home and brought to Babylon in 605. He's not much older than that, three years older than that when he's before Nebuchadnezzar. But when he composes the prophecy that bears his name, Cyrus had become king of Persia, not Babylon, Persia in 538. Daniel's now an old man when he writes this book. He's looking back at his life. 
And from what Daniel tells us in chapter 10, verse 1, when he's recounting his fourth vision, this occurs, he says, in the third year of Cyrus's reign, which would be 536 B.C. Well, why does this matter? It means, well, Daniel's now past 80 when he writes the book. And he's able to see in retrospect Yahweh's faithfulness to him over the course of his long and now illustrious life. Now, given his place in the royal court, serving Cyrus, a Persian king, there's the very real possibility that it was Daniel who was instrumental in Cyrus issuing that decree that allows the Jews to return to their homeland, taking with them the gold and silver vessels that had been taken from the temple. Now, even as Moses, back to Moab again, even as Moses reminded the people of Yahweh's threatened curse, being exiled from the land, the curse that ends up bringing Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian court, maybe Daniel knew Yahweh's promise to return the people from the land in which they'd be exiled. Because after warning Israel in Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 3 through 5, Moses reminds the Israelites that even if they come under God's curse, God always keeps his promises. Listen to these words from 1400 BC, way before all this happens. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples that the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the utter parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that they may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Well, no doubt. Daniel knew that prophecy. He also knew the prophecy given through Jeremiah. And we know that because Daniel is going to quote it in Daniel chapter 9. Jeremiah had predicted there would be a specific period of time that the Israelites would be exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah 25 verses 11 through 13. This whole land, Judah, shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after the 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And I will bring upon that land all the words I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. It's all going to come down on Babylon. So if we consider that Jeremiah was talking about the first part of the exile, which included Daniel in 605 B.C., then Daniel may have actually lived to witness the first exodus from Babylon in 538 to 535 B.C., 70 years or so after he'd been taken captive and Israel had been held exile in Babylon. It's very likely that Daniel was at least a witness to Israel's exile and this second exodus, even perhaps a part of the reason why Cyrus let the Jews go from their captivity. And little did Daniel know as he stood before Nebuchadnezzar as a boy to be examined by that king, he would live to see Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom fall under the judgment of God and at the same time witness God keep his promise to allow his exiled people to return to Jerusalem. There's a lot more to the story than four boys standing before Nebuchadnezzar. Now in all of this, Daniel is the very embodiment of Peter's exhortation in the second chapter of his letter, Two Christian Exiles, which we read as our New Testament lesson. Peter had written these words, and see how they apply to Daniel. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And this Peter goes on to tell us, points us ahead to Jesus Christ, who, Peter says, suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, at the end of Daniel chapter 1, there's just no doubt that throughout Daniel's life in Babylon, from the time he stood before Nebuchadnezzar as a boy until 70 years later when he's giving counsel to Cyrus, the Persian king, Daniel epitomizes the instructions given by Peter to Christian exiles. The sovereign hand of God gave Daniel everything necessary for his survival and his flourishing, making him ten times better than all the others. And while God preserves Daniel, he will bring judgment upon Israel in the exile and then a second restoration when Israel goes back to the promised land. But he's also going to crush Nebuchadnezzar and his empire. And in all of this, as Daniel is a witness, God is preparing the way for the coming of a messianic shepherd, the one who is the overseer of our souls, that one who will bear our sins on a Roman cross, who will be raised from the dead as a supreme triumph over sin and suffering and death, and who will serve as the tender and gentle overseer of our souls, the shepherd. And he, Jesus, will then become for us the supreme example of faithful suffering for all suffering exiles. Amen.